You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. a Bible, turn with me to the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua. We are uh, walking through the entirety of scripture now with a little asterisk, a little uh, note, uh, not every story, not every verse, but the, some highlights. And uh, this morning we're going to be in the book of Joshua and I have one sermon in Joshua. Uh, so I'm going to go through the whole book. So get, uh, get cozy, grab a coffee. It's going to be four hours. Uh, I'm so excited. No, it's not. I just saw someone walk out the back door. But um, no, uh, we're going to be looking at some highlights in the book of, of Joshua. But I, I think as we look at the book of Joshua, it's trying to say kind of one primary theme and trying to hit at one primary theme. And I'm going to uh, tell you what that is in just a moment. But if you have a Bible, turn me to Joshua chapter one. I'm going to read little portions of chapter one, chapter three, five, and six, just a few verses here and there, just to kind of give us some context of what we're dealing with. Maybe you're familiar with the book of Joshua. Maybe you're not, uh, but hopefully this will be helpful as we jump in and try to figure out what Joshua is trying to say to us here this morning. So Joshua chapter one says this, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses's assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore arise, go over to the, over this Jordan and you all the, this people into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Just as I promised to Moses from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses. So I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jump over to chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from the place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know this way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Jump over to chapter 5, verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after day after the Passover on the very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. 
And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for your adversaries? And he said, no, which is the most nebulous answer ever. We'll get to that in a moment. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. We'll read part of six. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of rams, horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every one straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Covenant. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. And so when you're reading the Bible, I hinted at this at the beginning, when you're reading the Bible, every book of the Bible has a theological agenda. In other words, all the sentences, all the words, all the themes, where the book is, where it's placed in scripture is shouting from the rooftops. I'm trying to tell you something. I'm trying to hone on something specific. I want you to to look at these stories. I want you to, to, to walk in these stories, but every author, every author of the Bible is trying to say something specifically. And we could narrow down Joshua to a lot of things. We could add in a lot of themes. We could say it's about this or it's about that. But at its core, the book of Joshua is about God's faithfulness. It's about a God who is faithful even when his people are not. That every movement in the book is shouting from the rooftops, I am faithful, I am faithful, I am with you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And as we've been walking through the scriptures together, we've looked at Genesis and Exodus um, and some other other texts. That theme of faithfulness just continually runs through uh, the scriptures time and time again, all the way back to the book of Genesis, where God creates this beautiful world, creates man in his image, puts him in the garden. We sin and Adam and Eve are are pushed out and banished. And yet, even in Genesis 3.15, what some have called the the proto-gospel, the first gospel, comes to to Adam and Eve and says, there's going to be someone who will crush the head of the serpent. Well, that someone was Jesus Christ. That even in your unfaithfulness, I will be faithful. I will redeem this. I will make all things new. As you keep moving through, he comes to this guy, Abraham, and he, he makes this promise to Abraham. He says, through your, your family, through your tribe, through your generations, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to redeem all people. I'm going to redeem Israel through your family. Just trust me. I know you're going to a scary place, a far off country, but just know that I am with you always. And even through their stumbling, even through their disobedience, God continues to be faithful to Abraham. And even later in the New Testament, it says that anyone that trusts in Jesus Christ is actually part of that story, part of Abraham's family, part of Abraham's seed. God is faithful. So when we trust in Christ, we can actually look back and say, look at this faithfulness. Look at all these promises he made thousands and thousands of years ago. He's still coming through on those promises. And then we 
pick up Moses in Egypt, the book of Exodus, 400 years, the people of Israel are living in slavery, banished, wondering, okay, God, you said we're supposed to trust you in this, and we're going to come to this promised land. What is going on? And he raises up Moses to lead his people to the promised land, this land that I have given you. And he's continually faithful to Moses, continue to his people, even when they're hard-hearted and stubborn, just like you and me on our best days. He's continually faithful. When we pick up the book of Joshua, it is absolutely clear that the author here is trying to make it clear without a doubt that God is faithful because now as they are moving towards this promised land that was promised to them many, many years before, God is coming through on the promise and it has nothing to do with them. It has nothing to do with their righteousness, their morality, their goodness, but everything to do with the character and nature of God who comes through on his promises because he is faithful and he is good even when we are not. And so I want to just look at uh, Joshua for a few moments here this morning and ask the question, well, what do we learn about God's faithfulness here in the book? And what do we uh, learn about our response to this faithfulness? What does that look like? How should that work? And it's, there's a lot in here uh, to look at. So I will do my best to keep it uh, as brief as possible because I get really excited about these things, maybe more, even more than you do. Um, so first word, there's a first word on true strength and courage. Notice how Joshua starts the book. Right? It doesn't start with some plan or, or some strategy. It actually starts with a word of, of grace. It starts with a reminder that I'm the one who's faithful. Ultimately, Joshua, I'm the one who's speaking. I'm the one who's going to lead you into the promised land. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, rise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people in the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Like God comes to Joshua and says, Moses is gone. Moses is dead. You're going to carry the mantle. And isn't it ironic that the name Joshua, it means the Lord who saves. It's the same word for Jesus. So wink, wink, nod, nod. This is going to be a man who will lead. Now, he's not going to be perfect like Jesus, but he's going to lead the people into the promised land. He's going to rescue them. He's going to save them. And just like I said last week, when we looked at the Ten Commandments, is that God always comes with the first word, and his first word is always rescue and grace, not obedience. It's, I've rescued you. I've loved you. I've made promise to you. I keep those promises. Now, in light of those things, go be obedient. Go act as if the whole thing's true. And he's doing the same thing here to Joshua and to the people saying, I need you to understand it's going to take great strength and it's going to take great courage. I'm asking a lot of you, like, remember Israel's not this mighty power. (laughs) They're not, you know, the, the top five strongest nations on the list of the top five strongest nations at the time. They're an agrarian farming culture. They don't have power. They don't have clout. They don't have size and strength. Here's all these nations. He's saying, I want you to go in the land. I want you to take the land. They're probably scratching their heads going like us. Are you sure? Like us. Okay. Um, But it starts with, I need you to have courage. I need you to have strength. But notice the context in which God speaks these things to Joseph. If you jump down to verse 5. He says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded to you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. 
Whoever gets a promise like this, like you, you start a job and he's like, hey, I just want you to know everything's going to go well at this job and you're going to kill it. Like before you do anything, right? You may be incompetent. You may not have all the right answers, but, but I'm just telling you, it's already yours. It's, it's good as gold. Just count on it, right? Like God is already promising Joshua, already promising people this land that I swear to you, it's already yours. And I'm going to be with you every step of the way. I, my presence is going to be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. You need to trust me in this. I'm commanding you to be strong and courageous. Now, this is significant because in the scriptures, a lack of courage is actually seen as rebellion because they've been here before. If you rewind the tape and rewind the movie, if you go back to Numbers 40 years before this, you remember when Joshua and Caleb were sent into the land? This is the same land to spy out uh, the, the, the land and say, okay, what are these enemies like? What's the land like? This land that you promised to us, what happens when they go and they spy out the land? Well, if you jump back to number or jump uh, backwards to numbers, verse uh, chapter 14, let's give you a little taste of Israel and what was going on 40 years before this. But then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Yeah, I think slavery is a, is a good option here. It shows you what our hearts can do. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let's get rid of this character, Moses. And if you jump down to verse 11, it says, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disherit them. I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. God's mad. Moses is going, wait, 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 wait. So they send these 12 spies in, and Caleb and Joshua are the only ones that say, we can go in, not because they were strong and not because Israel had it all together, but because they believed in the promises and the faithfulness of God. We can only do this because God's going to do it. Often in scripture, a lack of courage is actually seen as rebellion because you're looking at the promises, you're looking at God and his character and his nature, and you're saying, yeah, I don't think we can do it. Well, yeah, you can't. If you're just looking at yourself and you're looking at your situation and you're looking at, well, you know, we're, we're only this big and these armies are this. And right, if you're looking at from kind of the, the, the horizontal gaze and not the, the vertical gaze of looking at who God is and what he said and what he's promised, that's why God, God is upset. He's saying, just trust me on this. I know you don't understand. I know you're weak. I know you don't have it all together, but that's the point of faith. Like if you have it all together, what, what good am I? What do you need from me? Nothing, Right. And so there's this, this word of you need to be courageous. You need to trust me because I'm with you and I will not forsake you. I will come through on my promises. Courage, lack of courage can also be signed as rebellion. And, and it's interesting that when you go to actually Revelation, the last book of the Bible, one of the last chapters in Revelation 21, it says some, something interesting. I was just thinking about this this week. And, and in 21 and verse 7, it says, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. In other words, he's saying those who trust in, in Christ will inherit this new heavens and new earth and they'll rule and reign with God forever and ever in this new heavens where there's no more sin and no more tears. God is making all things new. But then he says, but it's for the cowardly, the faithless, 
the detestable. As for murderers and sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be like the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I haven't heard many sermons on, I've heard a lot on sexual immorality. I haven't heard many on the cowardly or the faithless, the detestable, right? In other words, I don't trust you. You're not good. Even though I've revealed my knowledge to you and I've, I've shown the whole world that, that my power in Romans 1 would say that everyone has this knowledge of God. You've been made in God's image. Everything screams. He's, he's here. He's alive. He's made all, all things. Even though I, I, I think I have all the answers, I'm going to not do what you say. I'm not going to trust you. That even separation of God has to do something with our own cowardness. I don't trust your character. I don't trust your nature. Now, I'm not talking about like fear, like scared of the dark or just the normal fears of someone's attacking you, of course. But the cowardness, the lack of courage when God says, trust me, obey me, even when you don't understand and you don't have all the answers, which by the way is always. Because <laughs> nobody knows the future. And it's, is it interesting? Um, I was thinking about scary movies. I don't, I don't love scary movies and you could probably apply this to different kinds of movies. Um, but there's always this scene in a scary movie where someone's in a corner and they're freaking out and they're doing the self-talk thing. Like, this isn't real. This isn't, I'm going to live. I'm going to, you know, moments you're talking about, right? Or it could be any stressful situation. It's like the self-talk. It's a guy in a bunker and he's in a war and he's like, I'm going to live. I'm not going to die. The enemies aren't that big, right? It's just kind of this, this self-talk, Right. But I think what the, the scripture's trying to do for us and what he's saying to Joshua is kind of giving us that you don't need to do the self-talk. You need to look to me and trust me because I'm telling you, the land is already yours. My presence is already with you. That the strength and courage that you need is not navel gazing, not looking in your own abilities, but knowing that I've already made these promises to you and knowing that my presence is with you and I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's where you need to look. It's not just nebulous self-talk of, I can do it, but self-talk in a way to point our eyes and our gaze to God. And what I, I love about Joshua in this first chapter, and we'll, we'll jump to the next one here, is he also says, well, how are, we get, how are you going to continue up that courage and that strength? And he, he reminds them about the word of God in verse 8. He says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So in, in other words, when you get scared, Remember my promises. Carry these stories around with you. Don't forget the plot. Like, like that's the point here. He's saying, as you go, and yeah, I'm not, this isn't going to be easy. Like this is going to go off the rails multiple times over. But as things get hairy and get dark and go sideways, carry these stories around with you so that you can remember them and you can tell them to your people and you can preach them to your own soul and remind them that God is good and God is faithful. That's why we're doing this series is we wanna get these stories and the scriptures in our hearts and in our lives so that when life goes off the rails, we can remember the promises of God, that God is faithful. When, when marriage gets hard and parenting gets hard and work gets hard and our bodies are falling apart and there's loss and there's death and there's cancer and there's destruction, there's everything seems to not be going well, we carry these stories around to not forget the plot. So he reminds Joshua, this isn't just about you. Oh, sorry. I called the police one time. Did I remember that? Oh, anyway, it was pretty awesome. Right in the middle of the sermon. Must have been a good sermon. I don't know. Um, but carry these stories with you. This is going to sustain you through the ups and the downs. 
Now, as the Joshua continues to move through this book, or as the, the story continues to unfold, we also see this means of what I'm calling faithfulness and grace along the journey. That even in the instructions that Joshua is getting from God to move into the land, we even see God's faithfulness and grace revealed in those instructions, which is really fascinating to me. And again, this book could be about a lot of things, but I'm going to land on that it is about God's faithfulness, just the way it's even laid out itself. So Joshua knows God's with him, knows the people are going to be led to the promised land. He knows that the land is theirs, but watch what God does as they move into, before they get to Jericho. It's very similar and very eerie to the crossing of the Red Sea, right? They're going to cross over the Jordan. Again, haven't we seen this movie with Moses before? We just, Josh preached on it a few weeks ago, right? The crossing of the, of the Red Sea. Now they're going to cross over the, the Jordan again, but there's some subtle differences and I think some, some details that are really important to really see God's grace and God's faithfulness on display. So notice in chapter three, then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set from you the place and follow it. So there's a difference. This is fast forwarding 40 years. Not the generation with Moses, not crossing of the Red Sea, but now instead of a pillar of fire at night and a cloud during the day, it's the Ark of the Covenant. It's this portable worship center that they were to carry around. The Levitical peace, uh, priests were to carry this Ark of the Covenant. It was to be represented by God's presence in their midst. They were to go in front of the people to remind them that God is with you. And what's fascinating about the Ark of the Covenant is on top, on the cover, there's these two golden cherubs on the cover uh, in between what they call the mercy seat. Now think of the imagery of what that is all about. As they're carrying this portable worship center saying, this is God's presence, this is God's laws, God's promises with you, even inside the Ark of the Covenant, in between this mercy seat is, remember that I am a God of mercy. Remember that I've come to forgive you of all your sins. I, and, and the reason I've come to forgive you of all your sins is so that I can dwell with you and you can dwell with me. That was the whole point. Remember we preached through Leviticus? That was the point of all these, these um, sacrifices and the Ark of the Covenant and later temple. All of these things were to, to highlight the fact that God is with you and he loves you and wants to be with you. I'm going to lead you into the promised land. My presence will be with you. There's a shift here. Never going to leave you or forsake you. My presence is with you. So these priests are carrying this ark. These were, you know, the high priests of the day. But isn't it interesting when we go to like the book of Hebrews, how Jesus is called our high priest, right? That the shift happens after Christ's life and death and resur resurrection. That these are just pointers. These are just reminders that God's presence will be with you always. It's a time in the history of Israel saying, saying, just don't forget he's with you. Even if it looks weird and there's an Ark of the Covenant and there's a temple later and all these people, but there's a Messiah who is coming who's going to show you mercy upon mercy and will never leave you or forsake you. You don't have to carry around an Ark anymore. You don't have to go to the temple anymore. He's going to become your Ark. He's going to become your temple. He's going to offer sacrifices you can't offer. He's going to actually offer his life so that you can come into his presence, so that you can know him, so that you can walk with him. He's going to walk 
in front of you. And I, I find it interesting that these priests have no idea what, where they're going or how they're going to get across the Jordan. I mean, they, they know the stories, right? I mean, I remember this story before when Moses went across with the Red Sea and Egypt's on their tail, right? And it's gnarly and it's out of control, right? And they're just going, I don't know. They just said, carry this Ark of the Covenant and everything will be fine. I'm just, we're just listening to the guy, right? Just trust me. It may not make sense, but just trust me. I'm going before you. That was the whole point. That was to remind the people that God is faithful. He goes before you. Before the battle even comes, he's already there. He's already in front of you, making sure that you'll cross over in ways that, that and, and, and it may not make sense, but, but ensure that you get to the other side. But isn't that how faith works? Like the priests have no idea how this is going to work. They just, all they know is they got to carry this thing across and it's going to go, okay, but that's how faith works, right? We don't know how tomorrow's going to go or the next day or the next year. That's why Jesus talks all the time about anxiety and worry because we think we're smarter than God. Well, if I do this and this is going to happen and yeah, there can be things that happen because of our actions. I get it. But the reality is we don't know what tomorrow holds, but the reality is that God is faithful in the midst of tomorrow. And he continually leads us forward. And he continually just builds out this faith and creates this faith in them to trust him, even in unlikely, crazy circumstances. And I think sometimes, because we live in the Western world and the modern age, is that we've been so discipled in just this era of reason and explanation and answers for everything that, that, that we just think we're smarter than we really are, that we think we're wiser than we really are. Like, here's one. You know, most scientists believe that like 85 to 95% of the universe is made out of dark matter. Like 85 to 95%. Do you know what dark matter is? We don't know. Like, it's just this thing. We don't know what it is, right? So like 95% is made out of this stuff. We're not sure what it does. We're not sure uh, what we should think of it, but that's like the whole universe. So if our little tiny brains try to get around this idea that 95 of the percent of the cosmos, like the whole universe, like, like trillions and trillions and trillions of light years away. It's like made up of stuff. We don't even know what it is. I, I think our lives are in good hands. I mean, we can look at it the, the other way, but I think our lives are in good hands. But it also is a, a humbling thing to remember that we don't have all the answers. We don't understand all that God is doing because God is doing a million things at a time. And in his infinite wisdom, is saying, trust me, I am faithful, I'm going ahead of you. And he keeps building on that with the Passover in chapter 5 and circumcision in chapter 5 as well. These signs of, isn't it interesting, these signs of God's faithfulness? So in the the, uh, crossing of the Red Sea with Moses, they celebrate the Passover before they cross over. Here, they're, they're celebrating this, but they're also bringing back in. Now, here's what's interesting about this and what's different about it. For 40 years, Israel didn't do circumcision and didn't do Passover. It's a whole generation of people that have forgotten God's faithfulness. Well, what's circumcision? That goes all the way back to Abraham. I want you to set up me a part of people. I'm going to be faithful to you even before you're faithful to me. Circumcise your, your firstborn. Set them apart as my people. Even, even people that are outside the community, you can bring them in too. But, but I, I'm consecrating you as a, as a unique people in, in the world. I'm going to be faithful even when you're not. Even before you are able to be faithful. And what do we get now? 
we get baptism. That's where circumcision started with circumcision. Now we have baptism. Isn't baptism the most beautiful picture of God's faithfulness? It has nothing to do with you. It's not about my public profession of faith and, and how I trusted in Jesus. It has those elements to it. But it's about a God who's been faithful before you were born, a God who's been faithful before he even created the universe. That's what baptism at its best is, right? It's the embodiment of saying, look how faithful God is. Look how gracious he is. Like, you're going to get baptized, but guess what? You're going to fall on your face time and time again, and yet God is going to be eternally faithful to you and gracious to you. And then every week, we celebrate the Passover and the Lord's Supper, right? That one day, this man, Jesus, would become our Passover lamb and remind us of God's faithfulness, of his grace and his mercy and his salvation, that when you thought all was lost, this man comes to die and to redeem and restore all things. So every time we come to the table, we're reminded of God's faithfulness, right? Like that's what the meal is. Like, God, you are faithful even when I haven't been this week. You're faithful when I lost my ever-loving marbles on my kids. I mean, I didn't. I was probably mostly you, but a time or two. You are faithful when I feel like I'm walking in darkness and not sure what the next step is. Isn't it beautiful how Joshua in this book, he's asking them to do, God's asking them to do this crazy thing. You're going to take the land and the promised land where you have no right to do that. You have no ability to do that. And he's going to continually give them little means of grace, little means of his faithfulness. Like, it's already yours. It's already yours. Just trust me and walk into the land. And then there's one other I'll just say this real quick, but notice how the manna ends in chapter 5, verse 12. I don't need you anymore, manna. And the manna ceased that day after they ate the produce of the land, and there were no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan. The, the manna that fell from heaven was just a, a temporary thing. Now they're saying, now you get to feast on the land that I promise to you. Experience my abundance. abundance. And isn't that amazing? Because one day there'll be a new heavens and a new earth where there'll be eternal abundance that you won't need God to send us down food. It, he will be our food. The, the land will produce all that we need and nobody will go hungry, right? These are all little hints of God's faithfulness and God's grace along the way, preparing them to trust in him and his goodness and his faithfulness. And then we, we get to, to Jericho. And, and Jericho, the battle of Jericho, I think is another echo of God's faithfulness. We may not read it, in that way, it's, it's pretty bloody and pretty gnarly, but it really is about how God is going to do something miraculous. That he's going to be faithful even when his people aren't faithful. And they, we have a history of that. Again, we'll go read Numbers, you'll see, right? We'll go read the Old Testament, go read the New Testament. But as they get to Jericho in chapter 6, notice what it says. And now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. Like he's already given it to them. With his king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city and all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you, you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of arms of rams, excuse me, horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joseph, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark 
of the Lord. Now, I am not a military strategist, as you know. But if I was going to fight against Canaan, the people of Canaan, this mighty people in this walled, fortified cities, I don't know if marching around the city and shouting and then eventually, hey, and then we're going to yell really loud and the walls are just going to come down. I don't know what you'd feel in that moment. Okay. (laughs) I mean, we don't really have any weapons. We don't really have anywhere else to go. So maybe singing, maybe shouting, maybe trumpets. That's, (laughs) That's what we need, right? They'll never suspect it, right? Just so you know, in the ancient world, that's not how you took down a fortified city. You either go under the wall, you either try to break down the wall, or you do like a, uh, you know, remember back in Troy when they had a big horse and they, you know, the Trojan horse and they'd sneak in, something like that. But Israel has no way of doing in anything like that. I want you to march around the city for six days. I want the Ark of the Covenant to be in front of you to remind you of my presence and my faithfulness. And then when you're told, you can shout and yell and then the whole thing's going to come down. Okay. But there's more going on here, as you can imagine, because the scriptures always have an agenda. Do you notice how many times seven is mentioned? 14 different times in this chapter. Seven being the number of completeness, of being wholeness. But if you go back all the way to Genesis, right, the six days of creation, right, and then on the seventh day, God rested. This is not by accident. I want you to march around the city for six days. Why? Because I want you to remind the people and I want you to remind Canaan and I want you to remind all the nations in the whole world. And then one day when people read this story, they'll get it in their bones and they'll get it in their heart that God is the Lord of all creation. That's what I'm doing here. And my ways are not your ways. You would think, hey, military strategy. Why don't we dig under the wall? Why don't we knock the wall down? Why don't we use all of our might? How about we walk and march around the city and sing and shout and make the walls fall down? And then on the seventh day, the day of wholeness, the day of completeness, the day of rest, my glory will be known, my my lordship will be known, my my creative power will be known, that I am redeemer and creator God. That's what the point of this was. So they would tell these stories many years later, and that, that idea of God being the creator, the one who was the one true God, even the other nations would go, oh yeah, that's the one who made the whole thing. And here's what's, I think, sad is Canaan and the people of Canaan, all these nations, they know who this God is. They've seen for years his power and his might, all the way back to Moses and their rescue at the the Jordan. They they know these stories. They know what he's done. And it's a bizarre story, and it's a difficult one. And and some would say it's so brutal, and it's it's ugly. Is it some kind of like ethnic cleansing? I've heard this, people accusing God of this and Christians of this. This is just unnecessary murder and brutality. Well, it's interesting when we think about it in those terms is that, you know, Jesus was an innocent man who was slaughtered, but no one gets really bent out of shape with that, right? He was slaughtered by the empire, and yet we just go like, that's okay, (laughs) right? It's not that. Now, it's difficult. I'm not, I'm not going to minimize that, but let, let me give you just a couple things. I knew this is always a question when we go through texts like this, like, okay, God's commanding them just to basically wipe out all these people and women and children. Like, it seems a little harsh, but also remember this. Back in Deuteronomy, they've already been commands of how to deal with these situations. Israel's simply doing what they were commanded to do. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 20, we get a couple of details in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10. It says, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer ter- terms of peace to it. 
And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And then the Lord your God gives it into your hand and you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city and all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. So Israel's been given these commands. If this, when you come up to a city and if, it's, if they're offer peace to them, this isn't about just battle them and kill them. See how they respond to it. But what happens when it's a city that's already been promised to you? And that's what the next command is about in verse 15. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as my Bible teachers say, the mosquito bites. As the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord, your God. They've already been commanded of how to deal with nations that aren't for them, but against them, aren't for their God, but against them. They're simply being faithful to what God has commanded them to do. Now, what's also important is that Canaan and the Canaanite religion and all these nations are not innocent people. Canaanite religion was, they'd sacrifice children. There's all kinds of sexual sins, all kinds of brutality and murder and all kinds of things that we won't get into this morning. These aren't innocent people, right? And they've had 40 years to repent. And you know what? What's so beautiful about Joshua? There actually is someone who repents in the story. In chapter two, who repents? Rahab, the prostitute. When the spies come, she takes care of them. She saves them. She puts a red crimson cord on the wall to make sure that, that she is safe. She has seen the power of God and she has seen this God and what he's like and has turned from her wicked ways. She's not part of Israel. She's a, a, a Gentile that, that, that worshiped the gods that they worshiped. And yet her and her family said, we've seen his power. We turn away from ourselves and we turn to this God. We trust him. So we have that. God has spared her in chapter two. And also in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5, it also says, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, saying this is why Israel is going in. It's not because you're good or moral or right or holy, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Israel is simply an instrument of God's judgment towards these nations. They're wicked nations. He has to be consistent in his character. Now, again, we have to live with the tension, right? But here's what's also helpful to me is that in chapter 7, a good Israelite named Achan actually sins and God destroys him and his family. He's on the team. Right? So in chapter 7 of Joshua, he takes out Achan because he holds back the possessions. He had commanded them, go in, take all the possessions, take all the, all the stuff. And what does he do? He lies to God. It sounds like Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, when they hold back from God and they're destroyed as well. God is serious about his holiness and obeying his commands. Again, understand this is a particular time in history in a particular context. It's not to be repeated. This is unique in Israel's history. 
And that's what I love about the Bible, that it's in there, right? It's grimy and it's bloody. Like, what world do you think we'd live in? It's all messy and gross and dark and, and people love each other and they hate each other and there's wars and there's famine. That still goes on today, right? And it doesn't saw off the hard parts, right? It allows us to live with those tensions and the mystery of like, hey, this is pretty bloody and I don't know exactly what to do, but I know that God is faithful and his ways are not my ways. I don't think this is some brutal thing just to be brutal because that's what God is like. He's being consistent to his character that he takes our obedience and holiness and our own worship and our own service seriously. And he's patient because generation after generation, he has been patient and faithful and given us every opportunity to look to him and to trust him. So, Jericho, how about a final word of grace in our response? What what do we do with all of this? When we get to the last chapter of Joshua, and we read in verse 13, it says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Again, he gets, we get to the end of the book, and God reminds them of his grace. All of these happenings, the walls of Jericho down, plundering the cities, taking the land was all grace. You didn't do any of it. You didn't deserve any of you. I didn't owe this to you because of your morality or goodness or rightness. Actually, you're kind of a pain in my neck most days. But it's all grace, isn't it? So, so when you get in those houses and you, and you celebrate the land and the abundance of the land, you remember God's faithfulness. The whole thing is a gift. The whole thing is grace. Remember his rescue. Remember how he saved you. Remember how he was faithful and he promised to be with you always. He's still doing that. See the gift, receive the gift, serve and worship can only be the proper response. When we see that gift, when we see his mercy, here's this thing that that you get that you didn't deserve and you wasn't owed to you. When we see the life of Jesus and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, this gift to you, the greatest gift that you didn't do and you didn't deserve and you deserve the worst and he still showers you with grace and mercy, our only response is, how can I serve you? How can I worship you? How can I follow you? How can I trust you? And he reminds them and he kind of goes through in verses 14 and following and he talks about serving that, serving him and, and worshiping him, but also like getting rid of all those other idols and all the other sins and all the other gods in your life, all those we like to call the disordered loves in your life. What are all the things that we worship and we bow down to and we give our lives to and we serve that just don't deliver on their promises? Let's lay those things aside because God's after our joy. God's after holiness, God's after abundance, God's after generosity, God's after making us whole and, and, and experiencing his life, his eternal life. Let's, let's repent of those things, let's confess those things, those things that, that are in our lives that we just give a little too much attention to, a little too much um, energy to, a little too much emotional weight to, a little too much identity to, whatever those things are, let's lay those things down. And trust me because I am faithful. Remember that I'm with you. Go back to the word of God and meditate on and think on those promises day and night so we don't lose the plot, right? Like I think sin is really just us losing the plot. That's all it is. When we sin, it's just forgetting the plot. It's forgetting who's good and who's loving and who's righteous. This thing that I'm running after that thinks going to give me what I need is just going to disappoint me time and time again. That's why we keep running after it, right? 
It's like we're just forgetting the plot. We're forgetting the faithfulness of God. We're forgetting his goodness. We're forgetting his mercy. We're forgetting his, his forgiveness. We're forgetting his grace and his salvation. We're forgetting his, his blessing and his, his promises. Sin is just forgetting the plot. So don't forget the plot. Keep coming back to the plot. <laughs> Get these in our hearts and in our, our lives. Remember his faithfulness and his goodness. And I wish I had more time to really dig into this, but um, we talk about Jesus on every page, and there's a really beautiful Jesus sighting in this book. It's in chapter 5. And I, I, I read it. This is pre-incarnate Jesus. You may have never heard this, but Jesus shows up in the Old Testament all the time. That's why Jesus is on every page. So Joshua is standing there in verse 13, chapter 5, verse 13. He says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for your adversaries? You're going to join us, take out Canaan, or are you against us? I need to know. And he said, no. That's not an answer. That's a nebulous answer. That's a trick answer. I'm not for you or against you. But I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for this place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I remember another burning bush moment with Moses. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. The I am is here. Jesus calls himself the I am in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, right? Jesus shows up in that bush. Jesus shows up here. Do you notice that he bows down and worships him? In Revelation, we're told that we're not to bow down and worship angels because they're pretty close to us. You remember that scene when John bows down? Joshua bows down here. And this angel of the army... Lord's army, if you will, doesn't resist his worship. This is Jesus in his pre-incarnate form showing up and reminding them that I am faithful and I am with you. You don't understand what's going on. You're about to go into a battle that, and you're going to march around a city and the walls are going to come down. It sounds crazy, but I want you to trust me in my faithfulness. And God is constantly doing that over and over again in the Old Testament just to remind us that my grace is with you, my mercy is with you. Just trust me in this. It's, it's confusing, it's mysterious, it's painful, it's, it's ups and it's downs, it's falling on our faces and everything in between. But, but he's just showing up and just saying, I just want you to trust me. I want you to re- remind you that I am with you. You're on holy ground and your life is safe with me. And the good news for us, church, is that years and years later, Jesus comes. And then we read in John, John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 that when the disciples were scared and they, they needed courage, right? Jesus is about to leave them. He says, it's good that I go away. It's an advantage to you. Why? So that I can send you my spirit. That when we trust in Christ, his spirit, his presence is with us always. Could we say the ark is with us always? The temple is with us always. And not only that, he's called us to be temples in our city and in our world. To know that he's never going to leave us or forsake us. When when we need courage, when we need strength, when it looks dark and we're not sure how to step out, we see and remember God's faithfulness. He gives us his spirit to remind us of the work of Christ who was faithful all the way even to his own death. 